Welcome to another episode of Mind the Shift. My name is Anders Bolling. What are we? We cover a wide range of topics to understand the shifts going on in our integrating humanity here on the podcast. But it's difficult not to constantly return to the question of what a human being really is, essentially. We know we have bodies and science, Western science at least, uh, seems to be... Uh, to understand quite a bit of how those function, but what about the non-physical aspects of us? Sometimes it feels as if we, at least we in the West, are on a kindergarten level when it comes to understanding the less palpable sides of humans. One of the most astonishing subjective experiences a person can have, uh, an experience which also seems to unveil some of those non-physical aspects, uh, is what we call a near-death experience, an NDE. We have had NDEers here on the podcast, like uh, Eben Alexander and Ingrid Honkala. And today I am honored and delighted to introduce you to one of the world's leading researchers in the field of NDEs, NDE studies, cardiologist Pim van Lommel. Welcome to Mind the Shift. You're welcome. So you were, as far as I understand, the first scientist to bring the study of NDEs to to the, the area of hospital medicine. You initiated a huge prospective study in the Netherlands in 1988. And 13 years later, you, you published this, the results in, in, uh, in the uh, scientific uh, uh, paper of The Lancet. And uh, it was immensely very much noticed. And you have since published several scientific papers on the topic. topic and you brought also your findings into a book Consciousness Beyond Life, which uh, was published in its first edition in 2007 and was also very much noticed. Your research and your book raise, of course, an unlimited amount of, of questions. I would like to know in, in our conversation here today about the science, of course, and about uh, the borderline between science and spirituality and about the, the, the reception of in the scientific community and also your personal journey, but I, I'll try to be stringent as well as open to where the conversation leads us. Maybe it's uh, pertinent to begin simply with, with the concrete research and what you have found. Can you first please give the audience a brief definition of a near-death experience? What, what are the, the, the common, uh, common features? Well, yes, a near-death experience is the reported memory of a special state of consciousness with universal elements like uh, experience of being out of the body, awareness of being out of the body, uh, eternal experience, meeting a light or a being of light, uh, meeting diseased relatives, uh, a life review, sometimes a flash forward, uh, coming to a border and then the conscious return back into the body. These are the universal elements. And what is striking is that so, when the body doesn't function anymore, like cardiac arrest, you have cognition, memories, uh, whatever, your feelings, etc., mm. the non-functioning brain. And that's a challenge for science as well. So how common are they? You say we're talking about people with cardiac arrests. Yeah. Uh, so how, how common well, is that? Well, we know from, from inquiries in, in Germany and US, USA, about 4.2% of the general population will have had a near-death experience. 
So that means 20 million people in, in Europe and uh, 9 million people in the USA. And we know it's especially from the Western world. We don't know how many times it occurs in other countries, but we know it will occur in other countries and other cultures. That has been mentioned in all times and all cultures and all religions in the past as well. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get back to that, uh, the, the notion that these experiences have been um, talked about since ancient times. Yes. Uh, so the, these people, they have these experiences of, of like you say, going to an, a different realm that they perceive as more real than this physical reality. And they often meet dead, deceased relatives. They have... Uh, Sometimes they go through a tunnel and reach some kind of light, which feels, uh, and they feel all in, uh, surrounded by, by unconditional love, as far as I understand. And uh, so, so how does it differ from other, kind, other similar experiences that people have, like hallucinations uh, and, and dreams, vivid dreams, for instance? What's the difference? Well, the near-death experience is such an, uh, overwhelming experience with an overwhelming content that you will never forget it and it changed your whole life because it has also transformational aspects when you have this kind of experience you change your insight in death, death. so they don't believe in death anymore uh, death is not the end of who we are they have a new insight of what is important in life and usually they also have enhanced intuitive sensitivities so they change really Basically, and after a hallucination or a dream, you usually forget a dream. Usually, sometimes people can remember dreams. And hallucination has nothing to do with reality at all. Mm, that's true. That's why it's called hallucination. <laughs> yeah. And hallucination also occurs when the brain is still functioning. And in cardiac arrest, oh, yeah. it doesn't function at all. Oh, yeah. That's the crux. That's the, that's the, the main thing and feature about this. Yeah. Um, and there are, of course, skeptics still, despite the fact that this has been described since, since thousands of years. And despite the fact that I'll come back to that, I think uh, many, many also very um, famous scientists of all kinds of, all kinds of areas have uh, described uh, uh, this, this uh, uh, notion that, that that consciousness is not located in the brain. It still, it still is a very controversial concept, and there are a lot of skeptics. You, you have in your research examined the many alternative explanations for NDEs yes. that have been presented, and and as we mentioned, hallucinations. And many still think they are hallucinations, but you, but you explain that they aren't. But there are, for instance, uh, explanations like physical ones, like the lack of oxygen and increased levels of CO2, et cetera. Can you talk a little about, bit about those explanations? Well, these discussions were the start of our study. So I, I was raised in a medical school and university that consciousness is a product of brain function. So it should be impossible that people can have enhanced consciousness with memories, with the possibility of perception out and above the body during cardiac arrest. So, um, and the first time I ever heard a patient with telling an any without no, knowing that these kind of experiences existed was in 1969, one of the first coronary care units in, in the Netherlands. I was just tr starting my training as cardiologist. 
En in de second cardiac care unit in Holland, we had, we had a patient of 43 years old who had a cardiac arrest and we resuscitated him with defibrillation and uh, external chest uh, compression. And he regained consciousness after four minutes and we were so happy. It was the first time for me as a, as a uh, physician uh, that we succeeded to get someone back. But the patient was extremely disappointed. <laughs> going through a tunnel, seeing a lighting, wonderful landscapes, etc. I never forgot this. And we don't remember or realize anymore that the modern techniques of resuscitation, CPR, is only possible since 67, 68. So before yeah. 67, all patients died with cardiac arrest. So since the modern techniques of resuscitation, we have the possibility to, to talk to patients who survive a cardiac arrest. Mm. I, mean, I didn't know anything about about uh, the death experience. So until I read a book in 1986 by George uh, Ritchie, Return from Tomorrow, who as a medical student in in 43 died from little pneumonia and there were not no antibiotics available. And he had mm. a very extensive death experience in a period of nine p minutes of death. He was resuscitated because his body was already covered with a sheet and the nurse was so upset that this medical student had died that he persuaded the doctor to give him an injection of adrenaline right into his heart, which was quite uncommon at that time. And he regained consciousness. He had a very deep and extensive ending. When I have read this book in 86, I just started out of curiosity to ask patients who had survived a cardiac arrest if they had memories from this period of Unconsciousness, and to my big surprise, within two years, out of fifty patients I asked this question, twelve patients told me about the ND. Mm. That was the moment my scientific curiosity started to grow because it was impossible, according to current medical science, that people could have these kind of experiences. So until that time, eighty-eight, there had been just retrospective studies done with a huge selection of patients and you never know exactly what happens medically after 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. So in that time, the theory was it was just lack of oxygen in the brain, neurotransmitters, hallucinations, bad dreams, uh, being trying to be very interesting, etc. So then we started our study in 88 with a prospective study of 344 consecutive patients Whose survivors of cardiac arrest in 10 Dutch hospitals. And then we did a second study of longitudinal study with late interviews two years and eight years after the cardiac arrest with all patients who survived with an NDE and then a, a match control group of patients who survived the cardiac arrest without any memories to see if the transformation, what I told you before, was a result of cardiac arrest or a result of the NDE that was never studied before in the prospective design. Now, what we found in our prospective study, the 344 patients, is that there was no explanation at all why patients should report a near-death experience. So the duration of cardiac arrest, two minutes or eight minutes, didn't matter at all. So the duration of unconsciousness, five minutes or three weeks in coma, didn't matter at all. Complicated mm -hmm. CPR with the, the artificial respiration, didn't matter at all. In the cardiac catheter with electrophysiological studies, we have sometimes to induce cardiac arrest in patients, but we resuscitate them within 20 to 30 seconds. Did it match at all? So the severity of 
anoxial, like a function in the brain, was not an explanation at all why patients reported NDE. And it was the same with the given medication. The same with psychological explanations or fear of death before the arrest. Um, no religion, if they were atheists or Christian, didn't matter at all. Uh, education, gender, didn't matter at all. So to our surprise, we found that there was no medical explanation. And we could exclude lack of oxygen in the brain as an explanation about cause and content of the enemy. Mm. And, and the height, heightened levels of CO2 is the same with that? Or what, same what with that. that? Yeah. So uh, when you have cardiac arrest, the, the, the oxygen level is lower and the CO2 is higher than normal. And that is not mm. an explanation at all. So we could exclude all the medical, physiological, etc. explanations. Mm -hmm. But often when the, when, or, or always when people have had these experiences, their, their EEG, to the extent that those have been measured, has flatlined. Is that correct? Right. So what, 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 of course, the, the, the challenge is to know what happens in the brain and in the body when you have cardiac arrest. Yeah. So there have been studies done in induced cardiac arrest let's say from patients who have an ICD, an internal defibrillator, to measure the threshold, threshold testing. Mm. And that they did it with EEG registration, so the registration of the electrical activity of the cortex of the brain. Now what we see when you measure the blood flow of the carotid artery in cardiac arrest, the blood flow is zero without one to two seconds. The people lose consciousness within several seconds, two, three, four seconds. Mm. There are no body reflexes left. So the body is totally without any reflexes, which is a function of the cortex. Mm. The brain, brain cell reflexes are done. The gag reflex, you can put a finger in someone's throat. White pupils who don't react to light or cordial reflex are gone. And the breathing... So basically, basically they're in, co in a coma? Is that what you call it? In coma, you can have sometimes even brain cell reflexes, but in cardiac arrest, there are no brain cell reflexes left. Okay. And then you have the, the, the breathing center close to the brain center, which stops functioning. So people have apnea, they don't breathe anymore. And when you measure the EEG activity in all patients within 10 to 20 seconds, there is a flatline EEG. Hmm. So all patients in our study must have had a flatline EEG because no patient will ever be resuscitated successfully within 20 seconds. It usually takes one, two, four, five minutes and then out of hospital to rest much more. So the mortality rate in patient is out of hospital arrest is about 90%. Mm. So when you don't initiate CPR within five to 10 minutes, all patients will die due to irreversible damage to the brain. So it, it's, it, it's called clinical death. It's, it's the first stage of the process of dying. Mm. And these patients, we, we studied in our, in our Dutch prospective design. Mm. So Flatline EEG is, uh, for a layman, uh, something that indicates that there is something uh, something else going on here than, than brain activity, of course, when people experience these things. Uh, can we also uh, talk a little bit about the fact that these people have heard and seen things in the room, for instance, where they have been resuscitated, which has been corroborated by personnel in the, in the room afterwards? Because that's, I think, sometimes important for skeptics to hear. If 
in order for them to maybe change their minds about it, because otherwise they can always say, oh, that's just an Im- a figment of imagination. But there are some concrete things here. Can you Or elaborate? It's very important. Your question is very important. That was for us yeah. very important as well. So we, we uh, there's a, a study a chapter written by Jane Holden in the book, uh, yearbook of the Ethics Experience, and also recently book, The Soul Does Not Die. It's in a total more than 200 cases from critical perception that had been corroborated by doctors, nurses, and family members. And also in our study, we described also one very intriguing out-of-body experience of a patient. We, we published it in the Lancet article as well. It's also in my book. Yeah. I'm a 44 years old man who was brought into coronary care who was found in coma in a meadow. And the people didn't start to do CPR really. So when he was brought into hospital by the ambulance, they were doing ex- external chest compression and in ambulance they had tried several times to defibrillate him without any success. So when he was brought into hospital, the coronary carrier, his body was cold, already blue, no circulation, no breathing, his pupils were white, not reacting to light. And uh, the first thing the nurse wanted to do is to give him artificial respiration, so to intubate the patient, to put something in his throat to give him more oxygen. They found out that this patient had, had a, an attention in his mouth. So he, the nurse removed his upper dentist and put it somewhere under in the crash car. And this patient needed one and a half hour, which is quite long, before he had circulation, blood pressure again. But because he was young, they really did a good try. But he was still in coma. He still needed artificial respiration. So he was transferred to the coronary, to, to the intensive care unit to continue artificial respiration for one week. He was one week in coma. Then he was brought back to the coronary care. And he was just there and the nurse came in for medication. He saw the nurse and said, you know where my dentures are. And he told <laughs> yeah. the nurse that he had taken out his dentures and put it in and sliding underneath of the, in, in, the, in the crash cart. He could describe the appearance of all the nurses and the doctors who were busy with the CPR. He could describe the resuscitation room from above where he was brought into coma, where he was transferred to the intensive care room in coma. And he could describe it into detail. So this proved that what he described as a perception out and above his body was corroborated by the nurse, by doctors, mm-hmm. etc., and it seemed to be true. So you, and, and, but skeptics always say this is an anecdote. But we have so many stories of this critical perceptions that you, there's no other explanation for the, for this kind of uh, mm. perception. There have some sometimes been uh, placed as, as symbols. Uh, close to the ceiling on top of lamps and things in operation yes. rooms in order for to, to see if these these p- patients that are in coma can can afterwards describe yeah. what symbols but but they, they seldom look at those symbols well, we, we had we had a, a, a two resuscitation rooms in our study as well with hidden signs above the operation lamp yeah. and other studies have done also by penisatorian in the UK and also still Sampani is doing it in, in the US and until now, there has no patient have ever seen this hidden sign somewhere close to the ceiling. And there is an explanation for it. When you, when you perceive, also when we are awake, we only perceive when we have intention and attention. When you drive a car and you look at your iPhone, there are so many accidents now because you cannot do two things at the same moment. 
It's called inintentional blindness. There are also yes. studies done that I refer to it in my book as well. So where you are out of your body, you see your own resuscitation, you see that it's your own body there where you look fine at the, close to the ceiling. You don't start to look around if there could be somewhere a hidden sign. That's mm. my explanation. Yeah, because it's not important for that person, for that person's life. Or they're anything. not interested at all to look around, but no. they're so surprised they see their own resuscitation or their own operation. Of course, I would be very surprised myself. I, I wouldn't be looking for <laughs> hidden signs. And, and then the, 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 the perception is totally different from the eyes. So you have a 360 degrees perception, and you can see details and overview at the same moment as well. And also from a position out of the block, you can see a perception in another part of the hospital, or you can be, when you think of, of your home, you will be at your home at the same time, mm-hmm. and see your family members waiting there. So it, it's not just in the room where you are being resuscitated, we can have sometimes perception uh, from above, from, from away from the where your resuscitation takes place. Yeah. Then some skeptics say also that, okay, uh, flatline EEG doesn't rule out brain activity, but you write some somewhere in the book, I think, that them saying this uh, misses the point. Yes, uh, so how, can you explain what yes. you mean by that? <laughs> For to experience waking experience, it's experience, the, the consciousness we have now when we talk to Misala, you have a lot of activity in many neural centers who have communication, with each other and integration of information. So you have a network of neuronal networks who work together. And there's not any sign of this global network activity at all during cardiac arrest. So according to our current neuroscience, it should be impossible to have any consciousness at all. Mm. So it's not, and, and we have had, uh, there have been studies done in animals and also the deep structures of the brain didn't function at all anymore in cardiac arrest in animals. Yeah. And I mean, you, you could also uh, philosophically d- ponder the fact that, I mean, we, you and I are talking now, but how can we be, <laughs> who is it? What is it that tells me that I'm going to t- use these words when I talk to you exactly now in this, this moment? I mean, I can see the brain activity uh, resulting from me speaking to you, but what's the hen and what's the egg, so to speak? Well, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, so, Perhaps can I add something that blind people, yeah. blind from yeah. birth, can have theoretical perception out and above the body during near-death experiences. There have been written a book by my Yeah, son. they have been able to s- s- quote-unquote un- see things exactly. during these experiences. And they have yeah. never seen anything, and people who are blind from birth don't have any pictures when they dream. They don't know anything about pictures, about how, how it is to see. And then during NDE, they see yeah. themselves or they see landscapes, etc. they've never seen in their whole life. They must be but enormously trans- transforming, transformative. Yes. Oh, it is totally transformative, yes, indeed. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a good example. Uh, but there are still so many skeptics out there, which is a bit frustrating. Do, do, I, I checked your Wikipedia page. Maybe okay. you have looked at it. And it's, it, also, it only refers, the references to your book is only from skeptical uh, people, you know. It, it's only referring skept, skeptical reviews. It's really well, unfair. There is a debate going, there's a discussion on the, on the article, which you can access. Maybe you have done that. And then they are a little bit more... They are critical to how it's been written, but but still, it's I mean, it's really unfair because I, I mean, 
it has no use. It has no use to change your Wikipedia page because when you want to change it, to change it again within one day, the yeah. skeptics are very active. They're active. Uh, so I don't look at it at all, and it is not fair at all. Just, no, don't do it. Not, <laughs> uh, they're frightened. They're frightened because it they lose the worldview when it yeah. should be right. Then it should be really happening like. Will the people with an ND tell us? Then the whole worldview collapses. So they're frightened and they are, they're very aggressive as well. They attack the, the person, they, they put it at home in them. Hmm. They, it's not a scientific discussion. They right. attack me as a person as well, or they attack Evan Alexander as a person as well. That's yeah. how. Yeah, sometimes I get the impression, maybe you do it too, that, that uh, the skeptic's main argument is that this, this can't be because such a thing can't be. I mean, it's a catch-22 argument in a way. So it's it can never be like this. And thus the task is to find a physical explanation at any cost, as it were. And, and we will just have to accept that the phenomena we can't yet explain with physics, they are inexplicable for the time being. So we just have to wait. That's the only way they look at it. Do, do you see it the same way? Do you have the same experience? Well, the current science has a in the Western science had the materialist paradigm, which is that only what we can measure, what we can objectify, what you can duplicate, what you can falsify is reality. Yeah. So that's the physical aspects of everything we see and measure. But consciousness and the content of consciousness, what we feel and what we think, we cannot objectify, we cannot measure, we cannot duplicate, we cannot falsify. So it is beyond our current materialist paradigm in science, everything from consciousness. So consciousness studies of the last 10, 50 years are changing the concept and the definition of science as well. So we need what we call a post-materialist science or an all-inclusive science, which includes subjective experiences as real as well. What we feel and think is our essence. Mm, it is. It is at the core of, of, of all knowledge, actually. Exactly. And they are, and there's still a lot of neuroscientists believe that you have to look in the brain to find it. And they, until now, they, they did not find it. They will never find it as well. But the problem is, for the most not neuroscientists, the philosophers as well, psychologists sometimes as well, that they have the research money. And when you say it's not in the brain, but somewhere else, they lose the research money, they lose the position on the university. Okay. So mm-hmm. they're frightened. And um, I know some professors who just tell me personally, I, I agree with what you tell, but officially they say it's total nonsense until they retire. Okay. And then, open, and then they say, yes, it is different than, as I have told before. Yes, but you were you were brave then because you started pondering this already in 1969. But it was on, not until you read that book in 1986 that you started to really want to to look deeper into it or, or ha, had you been thinking about this ever okay. since that, it, it that, that experience my, in 1969 it was just my scientific curiosity after reading the book by george ritchie yeah. it started to, to help me to start this this, this research okay so, what about now it's been 20 years since you um if if we continue on that, the, the the way skeptics look at it and and science mainstream science, it's gone twenty. It's been twenty years since you published that paper in in the Lancet. Have you noticed some any kind of shift in the scientific community towards this, uh, the NDE studies and the the notion that that consciousness is perhaps not located in the brain? 
Yeah. Well, there have been uh, four studies done, prospective design studies, based on the same design as our study, like one study in the USA by Bruce Grayson, and two British studies, by one by uh, Sampani Peter Fennec, another one by Patty Satori, with a total of 562 survivors of cardiac arrest. And in these four studies, we all found that there is no physiological, psychological, or medical explanation why people have this kind of experiences. And they all found the same percentage of ME within between 10 and 20% of the patients who survive a cardiac arrest report this kind of NEs. So uh, it's still the paradoxical occurrence of enhanced consciousness when the brain does not function at all. And mm -hmm. that's a challenge. Yeah. It's a challenge. And, and then the, the philosophical question of where the where consciousness is, is located. I know David Chalmers, you refer to him in the book uh, quite a lot, and, and he's famous for, for, for coining this expression, the hard problem of consciousness. It is a, it's, it's a good term, actually, because it's, it's really a hard problem. It's Most hard. of the knowledge, knowledge the things that we don't know about the world are easy problems because we can understand how we someday will be able to understand it. But we will probably never be able to, by way of uh, uh, traditional science, understand how we understand things, so to speak. I mean, the, the core of, as we were talking about before. So what we can measure is neural correlates of consciousness. You see changing in activation where you see or think or whatever you do, but you cannot measure consciousness itself. You can just changing neural correlates. And neural correlates, it's not the same as consciousness. No. So it's so I sometimes compare it with the, the gravity. We can measure the effect of gravity in the on Earth, but we cannot measure gravity forces at all because it is in a higher dimension. It's not in the physical reality. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it's true. It's really a, a, an enigma. Yeah. I mean, I, I think laymen think that we we can measure gravity, but we can't. No. It's nothing that can be we can seen. See the physical effects, effects of gravity. Yes. See the physical effects of 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 consciousness. We, we cannot measure it itself. So so for me, the brain has a facilitating function and not a producing function of consciousness. So it makes it possible to experience waking consciousness in your body and in your brain, but it doesn't produce it. And to understand this, I compare with the worldwide net. With the internet, with one billion websites or one yes. billion YouTube films, you need a functioning computer to receive some parts of these websites, of the part of the, uh, the this this uh, iCloud. But it is not produced by your computer. Mm. When you put off your computer, the web, the, the the internet is still there. When you yeah. put off your brain, your consciousness is still there. It's yeah. everywhere. So it's not local, it's beyond time and beyond space. It's just what we know from the live review and also sometimes with flash forward. You can have, you can connect with what you have done in the past, what you've thought in the past. Each thought you ever had is kept alive. You can also have sometimes see future events as well. So you are in a dimension, in a realm, where time and space do not play any role anymore. And that's a non-local realm. And that's why we call it non-local consciousness beyond time and beyond space, which is different. So the waking consciousness is just a part of this non-local consciousness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you, you use the analogy of uh, a computer there, and I, I, I just love that. I Myself, I've been using the analogy of a TV set, 
but that's, <laughs> yeah, but it's a bit incomplete. So you use also in the book the analogy of a transceiver, which is a, 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 so, a, a so device that record and uh, tra transmits. So it is the, the the television camera and the television set together. Yeah. The television yeah. camera makes the the physical realm fixes into to information and then the electromagnetic information and the TV set makes electromagnetic information back into sound and view. Yeah, I love that analogy. And when I heard it the first time, I think it was in the late 80s or so, or maybe earlier, I can't remember if it was Rupert Sheldrake or somebody talking about morphic, uh, morphic resonance and mor morphic fields, yes. which is a, a little bit the same, same concept. Uh, it, it immediately made sense to me because then you can understand why people, I mean, you can, op you can remove big parts of the brain and, and some people who have suffers that are subject to that. They can still function more or less normally. And it's, it's inexplicable if you don't understand that the brain is uh, something different than, than where everything emanates from. And it's also plastic, plast uh, there, there's also this, what you call neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity. Uh, Yes, yeah. and you, you have this wonderful sentence also in your book where you write, uh, uh, how, can, uh, <laughs> how can a product, how can a, I can't really remember exactly what it is now, but how can a product change its producer or something like that, <laughs> which is really, really good. Yeah. So neuroplasticity, we know uh, that when we, in a daily life, our brain changes as well as long as we think and study, our brain changes as well. And uh, when we make music, our brain changes as well. But we also know it by, the, let's say, the placebo effect, where you mm -hmm. think that you receive a medication. And it is especially studied in chronic pain patients or in severe depression or in Parkinson's disease. When you give them placebo, you see change in the brain that are identical with the real medication. Mm. So you self-changes your brain because you believe that you received this information, that this medication. And that's the same with permanent and temporary changes in the brain by meditation. But people meditate, you see permanent changes in the brain as well. So you get structural and functional changes in the brain by meditation, by placebo effect, and also by mindfulness. So you can prove that these changes are real. Mm. So how would a skeptic explain a, a, a thing like that, that placebo effect, the placebo effect changes, actually changes the neurons in the brain? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how they can explain it. <laughs> Probably not. No. Now, well, this is with the general idea of consciousness not being located in the brain, but uh, I think some people may have heard of that, not least because of this, this debate around what David Chalmers calls the uh, the hard problem of consciousness. But I think it's a bit more surprising to the layman that uh, mainstream science has also not been able to locate where memories are stored in the brain. No. It's a bit more surprising, but it's the same thing there, is it? Yes, you, you have some memories when you're awake, but when you're out of your body during cardiac arrest, you have memories from, from, from birth. And you know exactly what happens, what you thought, what you have said, what you have done. And you're also in life review are connected with the consciousness of others as well. So you may took some 
brave thing from your little sister. You know how sad she was. You know how mm -hmm. sad so you're connected with the consciousness of others as well. So in this other realm, non-local realm, you're connected with the consciousness of others as well, which is totally different from some memories we have in our body when we are awake. So there are many more memories that are available when you are awake. This is a little bit uh, analogous to what spiritual people call the Akashic records. You're familiar with those. Yes. The well, concept that everything, every knowledge is is, is somewhere in the, the non-physical realm and we can access it uh, under right. certain So the, in, in the, the Hindus call it the Akashic record. Uh, Irvin Leslo uh, calls it a, uh, the Akashic records. Rudolf Steiner calls it the uh, Akashic records. Yeah. Um, uh, de Chardin calls it noosphere. But it is what we call now the non local realm. Everything is stored there and we are available to have access to this. Mm. And when we have had this near death experience, the access to this non local realm has been enhanced. So you, did, you just don't just receive channel one, your own consciousness, but you receive channel two, three, or four, consciousness yeah. of others as well. So you know what other people think and feel, which is quite amazing and, and frightening as well. You, you see somebody and know that he will die in three weeks and he will die in three weeks. So you don't want it, but they have this access to non-local consciousness and it's frightening for them. And, and they, they usually don't talk about it. You have to ask about it as well. So yeah. their whole life change and they have a lot of what we call non-local information exchange. They will receive information, not by the senses and not by the body, which is really frightening. Mm. It's not it's totally unexpected as well. Yeah. So what about these people, the majority of people with who have suffered cardiac arrests who do not experience an NDE, where are their consciousnesses yeah. when they are gone? Uh, well, the, the question first is there are those 82% of the people who don't report an NDE, they, they don't have an NDE or do they not remember an NDE? That's mm. the first question. Mm. Uh, we know from very young patients who have an NDE under the age of five or six, they usually don't remember the NDE, but they all have the transformation, especially enhanced intuitive sensitivity. So you don't have to remember it, but you have the transformation. Now that was one of the reasons we did the prospective study with late interviews, two years and eight years, to see if there is a transformational aspect in people uh, having a cardiac arrest without reporting an NDE. And we found it a statistical difference. So only patients with NDE have this transformation, which okay. really proves that these patients who don't report it did not have it. Now there's now some other aspects as well. We've, our mean age in our study, cardiac arrest patients were 62 years old. Patients under the age of 60 had more often an NDE than the older part of the study. People who had an NDE as a child of a younger age had more often an NDE as well. Hmm. And we know uh, from other from retrospective studies that with the mean age between 30 and 40 usually uh, car accidents whatever uh, there's a percentage of 30 to 40 percent and when there's there have some only one study with prospective study done in young children the percentage is 70 percent and so the younger you are the more chance you have with an any and it means for me that when you are young the connection between consciousness and the brain is more loose and the older you are mm -hmm. the connection is more strict so when you have a cardiac arrest at the age of 60 or 70 you, it takes more time to get out of your body 
and you yeah, resuscitate yeah. within five to ten minutes. And they're all people will die, who die will have a death experience, but perhaps it takes 30 minutes or an hour or two hours before they're out of the body. And in our study, you have, have been resuscitated within five to ten minutes. So they didn't have the chance to get out of the body. That's my explanation. It's a speculation, but I think that could be an explanation. Mm. But it is speculation. Children are very interesting, very young children, especially under the age of six or seven, when where it seems that, as if the brain starts to become more like the brain yeah. of adults. Um, you know that at the University of Virginia, they're, they're, they're conducting studies on past life memories and, and really meticulously uh, studying stories, uh, narratives from, from young, young children who talk about uh, memories from past lives or what seems to be past lives. And they have, they have checked sometimes if these stories can be, can be right and they have been able to corroborate many of the, the details. Oh. Have you also looked into these, uh, this thing about uh, past life memories or what we would call the reincarnation? No, I didn't look at it, but I know the studies from uh, from Ian Stevenson and, and Jim Tucker as well. And especially also before the age of six, they have spontaneous memories because yeah. they are more open. They are more connected with the non-local cultures. And when they are getting six or seven, they, then the new worldview comes and you mm. forget your positive, your, your, your connection with the non-local consciousness are getting lost. Mm. It's getting lost. So, but I know there have been studies done where 90% of the all the things young children told were happened to be true when you go to other families where he would have been would have lived, etc. So yeah. I think it's it's real. Reincarnation is a real possibility. But Ian Stevenson has said there's no scientific proof for reincarnation, but it's beyond reasonable doubt. And that's the same for near-death experience. You cannot prove it. Of course, you cannot prove scientifically subjective experiences, but it is beyond reasonable doubt. It's it happened so many many times. You cannot uh, say it's nothing. It, you cannot say it's nonsense. No, but when if you have all these these stories, detailed stories, and you can corroborate that they are actually, I mean, it, it goes beyond uh, uh, random after a while, of course. Exactly. So, uh, and I personally, I've I've thought a little bit about. Uh, how, how, how small children, I thought about it just the other day, small children react and how they behave is really fairly odd, actually, if we were to be randomly assembled flesh, assembled flesh robots, so to speak, biological robots, we would be more or less, you know, uh, tabula rasa, blank, blank slate when we are born, uh, apart from some, of course, um, genetic inheritance. But other, other than that, we would be, completely, I mean, open to whatever is happening here on Earth. But small children are really acting in a peculiar way because they're really, truly surprised when they can't have the things that they desire immediately. Firstly, that they can't have them because it's not yours. You can't have it because it's just yours and you can't have it now. And they're, they're I mean, you can, you can look at them, you can see that they're truly, truly surprised and then they are sad and then they're angry. And we find it funny but if you think about it more deeply, it's really very strange that they would react in that way if they didn't have some kind of remembrance of another reality, another realm where these things were natural. Would, you, would you agree with that? Yes, I totally agree. Um, so I'm, I was the thing, the, the question I asked about uh, where people with without memories of an NDE 
are or where their consciousness are is when when they are out is basically the same question as where are we where are where is our consciousness when we are in deep sleep do you have any thoughts on that i mean the rem sleep is the sleep where we have dreams i guess and then you can see brain activity and all that and you can remember dreams many times but then we are in deep sleep what's where are we then what do you think well there's still activity in the brain okay you don't, you're not but we can't remember what's what we're doing no because there is no waking consciousness so we mm. need other activity in the brain to have waking consciousness. And that's also in general anesthesia there's activity in the brain that you don't experience waking consciousness because you need a special activity in the brain, as I've told you before, with the several neural centers who communicate with each other and have, have information exchange. And this exchange stops during sleep and stops during general anesthesia. So I always ask when I lecture to the, to the audience, where is your conscious when you're asleep? Because mm -hmm. you have conscious, but you don't experience it because your brain doesn't receive this information. Mm. And when you dream, we have also a different kind of consciousness. It's also beyond time and space. Uh, sometimes you have prognostic dreams that you dream about something and years later you say, oh, that's what I have dreamt, a, a funeral, a wedding, a house somewhere in another country. You say, oh, I've been there before. So, aha, LA, please. So, yeah. so you I can have prognostic dreams as well. Yeah. So you can have access to this other realm during dreams. You have lucid dreams as well, that you're aware that you're dreaming. You can change the content of your dreams as well. So yeah, I've heard about that. I, have, I haven't experienced that myself as far as I remember, but... Uh, but do you remember your dreams? Yes, I do. Most oh, I, yeah. mornings I remember the last dreams I had, or I wake up a couple of times uh, during but the night. I never I remember. remember. Yeah. You never? You, no, never. But you, yeah, I think you can train a, a, little, a little bit, but I never had it, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had what, what some people call big dreams a few times during my life, maybe 10, 10 or so, and I've written them down, so I have them in a file. Okay. And they, are, they were really big because I, I woke up uh, without any obvious ob objective reason for waking up. It was completely quiet. I just woke up like my higher self or whatever it is told me that you have to remember this. This is yes. important. It was, it was a feeling like that. So that's a kind so of just, lucid dreaming. Yeah, that's a kind yeah. of lucid dreaming. Maybe it is. The aspect of yourself said you have to wake up and, and remember it. So there are two aspects of consciousness at the same time. Yeah, I didn't hear a voice telling me that, but I no, had no, a feeling, an inkling. Yeah. It, it has to be a voice, but it is an inner knowing. Yeah, it was like that. Yeah. It's, it's many years now since I, I had that, but uh, yeah during my formative years, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so this is also a little bit uh, going into the, the societal matter of uh, side of things here. Uh, this, this notion about consciousness and what it is. There is a number of well-known scientists, as we mentioned earlier, uh, psychologists, of course, but also physicists, philosophers, and other scientists that, that and since over a hundred years ago, that that have uh, had this general idea that consciousness is is not in the brain, and it's also central to existence. I can just mention a few, and you mentioned many of them in your book: William James, Albert Einstein, Erwin Schrödinger, John Wheeler, Greg Matloff, Roger Penrose, David Chalmers. We mentioned, uh, and more recently, Donald Hoffman, Nassim Haramein, Bruce Lipton, and others. Only men, <laughs> by the way. 
just a coincidence but anyway you know and these uh, so so it's it's not a it's not a new concept well if consciousness is indeed central to existence and it so to say precedes the material existence so matter is is a consequence of consciousness rather than the other way around then what does that entail that reality is more or less subjective to the extent that there is an objective reality this is perhaps more some kind of a lowest common denominator so to speak for all the myriad subjective perceptions that 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 we have of reality would you so what we call it is the consciousness is fundamental in the universe yeah everything comes from consciousness and matter comes from consciousness what we perceive in our daily life is also based on our consciousness so everything what we experience is based on our state of consciousness so when we are in love the world is beautiful when you're depressed the world is awful when you're terrified by the uh, press or by the politicians, the world is frightening. So everything is subjective. And we also know it from quantum physics that there is no objective science at all. So the results of an experiment, like the double split experiment, is depending on the consciousness of the, uh, the scientist. The, the design of the experiments makes the result of what we will find. So we can prove that life behaves as particles, and we can prove that life behaves as waves. Both is true, but it is impossible that both is true. So it, it, it's how we look at an experiment, what our design is, makes the result as well. So it's subjective. Mm. But that, does that tell us something about how we should look at this whole debate about you know political and uh, uh, societal uh, debate about truth and uh, deniers, fact resistance. Maybe maybe that's taking it a bit far, but to some extent, it might have something to do with it. Well, I think fake news is is awful, and also about climate change and about what happened to the earth is how we have to change ourselves to change the world. We have, we cannot change other people. We have we have to change our own consciousness and the way we perceive the world then we can change ourselves. And by changing ourselves, we can change the world as well. Mm. So uh, we have to listen to people with an LE who say that everything and everybody is always connected. So what we do to others will come back to us in positive and negative ways. When we, what we do to nature, to planet Earth, to, to we do to ourselves, will we'll, we'll come back to ourselves. So we, when we know that everything is connected, we have to change the way we live to save the communities and to save our planet Earth as well. Mm. And because there is also that everything is always connected. Yes, yes. Uh, and ancient texts reveal a lot of knowledge about this, these things, about the, after, the afterlife, of course. Uh, and this is a knowledge that we obviously now are again becoming aware of thanks to the increased possibility to resuscitate, resuscitate uh, dying patients. Yeah. But we tend to perceive ancient beliefs uh, and ancient texts and ancient thoughts as too simple, too fairy tale like And we also have been taught that the lives of ancient people was, was miserable, miserable. Why we have, um, which has strengthened our views that, that, you know, their belief systems were inferior to ours. But as we now approach this with curious minds and scientific mindsets uh, like yourself here, 
and, and uh, quite a few others, actually. It turns out that what we find is basically what the ancients were talking about. Do you think that we have reached uh, in our evolution here on Earth, mankind, humankind, uh, a matureness today that, that makes this make it possible for us to, to, to embrace this deep knowledge and this time to our benefit, perhaps? So what I always say, there's, Big nothing, there's nothing new in this time. What we are reinventing all knowledge and all wisdom. And that has been set down in the Vedas and the Upanishads. It has been set down in Tibetan Buddhism. It has been set down in, in, in the Kabbalah. It has been set in the Gnostic uh, Christianity. It has been set by Plato. Plato who writes yeah. about a classical near-death experience where the soldier heard, but also writes that the soul is eternal and is just the soul is experienced in a body which disappears as well. So mm -hmm. it's a temporary body with an eternal soul. That's what Plato says. So it has been known always, and we have forgotten it since the last three, four uh, centuries as well, because of the, uh, the what we call science has changed, but it has changed into a materialistic approach, a materialistic um, paradigm. So we have forgotten the real insight and wisdom of all the knowledge. And I think also the indigenous people in the United States, but also Aboriginals in Africa, etc., has have known always this kind of generation where they have been in contact with the older um, uh, families, older members of the families as well, where they have died. So it's, it's not new at all, but we have the huge prejudices because of our modern materialist approach in science that we are not open to mm -hmm. this kind of knowledge, but we are changing. And I personally believe that all these kind of experiences that have been there for ages and ages and ages and all times and all religion are the basis for what we call now religion. It, it, it's a reinventing of old wisdom. Mm. Maybe the problem with the, with religion has been that it has been fairly materialistic, actually. Oh, yes. Because so it has, I, it, there's been a separation between God and man. You have to do something here on earth in order to enter, the, enter heaven. And so. I'm not talking about church. I'm talking about religion, which is... Still yes. That's <laughs> and, and people with, with an NDE, they always tell me, I don't believe anymore. Yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They know. Nice. They know how it is. They know that there is no end of our. Yeah. There is a continuity of consciousness. Death does is not death, but another form of life. Yeah. You you mentioned Plato. He has had this wonderful concept of, I don't know what it's what the term is in English, but the the, the realm of ideas or the world of ideas. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's there's I mean we have we have things here on Earth, but there is in that other realm there is the perfect expression of that idea which oh, yeah. is actually what we have in our heads when we want to create something we think about something and inventors they have they they suddenly get a an epiphany an idea i want to create that and then they do it and then they they have the physical result which is probably a bit uh, sub optimizing of of the <laughs> the first idea because the idea is perfect the, the bible starts with the word logos logos yeah. idea is a word so it starts with the words it starts with the ideas Yes, and the beginning was the word. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I I can't think of a field of research that would be more important than than trying to find out what we all are and why we exist. So I, I can't understand the skeptics uh, 
you on this. They, they find well, other... they that's what I told you before. They're frightened. They're frightened to lose the research when they're frightened to lose their worldview. And, yeah. and I can understand it. I can understand. I don't understand the aggressive way they attack me, like what you said. No. The skeptics change my, my Wikipedia. They, mm. they, they publish skeptic articles about me or about Evan Alexander, a lot of people who study or doing studies on, on their death experiences. Mm. But I understand they're frightened. And I always tell people that I know a, a painter here in, 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 in Holland who, who has said in, in, that I always listen with a lot of interest to all the critics to my work. Mm. So I learn how people think. So okay. it's not always about the others. It's not mm. about my work, but it's about how other people think. Okay. But that's yeah. not about this. We learn about the skeptics, how they think. It's not that's, about my work. <laughs> no, that's that's very wise to yeah. see it that way because it's not you shouldn't take it personally. If, if you take no. everything personal, you will you will just uh, perish. You know, it's it's not. It possible. has been sometimes a little bit difficult, but now I've learned. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. You're a wise man. <laughs> now I send them some love when they attack me. <laughs> okay, good. So, what do you think the implications would be if uh, you know uh, so for science and medicine if it were to be become commonplace and mainstream? to accept that consciousness is non-local and both precedes and continues beyond the physical body. What would the there is a little talk about healthcare. How do yeah. we treat patients in coma? How do we treat terminal patients? How we treat, how we talk about life and death? How we accept end-of-life experiences? How do we accept after-death communication? In, in Europe, about one of the 20 million people must have had communication with the conscious of disease relatives, but they don't talk about it because it's not accepted at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and it changed your insight in what, about life and death. And the way we uh, think about death changes the way we live our life. And, and uh, so also about uh, organ transplantation. Mm -hmm. when, when someone is declared brain death, which is the, the start of the process of dying and they take out organs from a body with a beating heart uh, what happens to consciousness at that very moment so we have a yeah. lot of aspects you can discuss and then the other thing is how do we treat our planet earth our endangered planet earth how how do we use our food why do still people eat meat mm. it takes so much water and land to have meat uh, so we have to change the way we live, we have to change the way we, we, we what we eat, we have to change how we meet how we treat others as well. Uh, so it has a huge impact in our society as well. And it take it changes a bit, but it is a, a slow change, but I'm very positive. I think it will yeah. change. And the, uh, what I know from the younger generation when I lecture to medical students, they are much more open than the older generation like my generation. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Maybe we would have less uh, pills prescripted and uh, less incidences of depression and, and all those yeah. kinds of things. But it takes time. How has this uh, research affected your own view on life? Has it diminished your own fear of death, for instance? Maybe you weren't afraid of death when uh, you were younger. Uh, uh, my idea was always that death is the end of who we are until I started to study and to talk with patients with the death experience. And I've talked to hundreds or perhaps thousands of patients and have received 
thousands and thousands of emails from all over the world to people who, who share the ND with me. So now, I don't think I'm really afraid of death. I'm now curious what happens when I die. Mm. And I think it changed the way I live uh, as yeah. well. So I'm more conscious about nature. We always, at least one hour in nature walking there or walking and uh, I love silence. We, we have uh, uh, organic food, what we eat, uh, mm. logic organic, like, like uh, anthroposophy. So okay. we try to live a little bit more consciously than, than, than we did in the past. And my yeah. wife helps me as well. In the same way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it is easier to live in the moment when you're not a, a afraid exactly. of death, I guess. No. Uh, it, it's all about the moment. The key to happiness, I think. Exactly. Uh, so finally, I just want to ask about the, the times that we live in now. We have this pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, and it has uh, raised a lot of questions about how we react to things, to big things, life and death and all that. You know, Many countries have had these lockdowns. I know there was a big debate in, in, in your country, the Netherlands, about the lockdowns there. It was even a court case. In Sweden, we haven't had a complete lockdown, but it's been uh, restricted enough in many respects. So... Um, when you hear the politicians and the media talk about what we are doing here, they're talking about saving lives, saving lives. But that's kind of interesting because you can't, I mean, this is a paradox because we have been talking about our lives as probably being at the core eternal, but our physical bodies, our physical lives are obviously not eternal. I mean, we are going to die. And when you, when you listen to the debate around this pandemic, it, you get the impression that that these politicians and these these media persons they kind of uh, uh, convey the, the 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 notion that that uh, if we didn't have this pandemic nobody would die we would be immortal so we saved life we had to save life do, do you understand what i'm talking about i think this is a bit problematic does this say something about how detached we are detached we have become from life and death and all this yeah. now, one of the main thing is what we discussed as well so death is the end of our physical body but not the end of our consciousness but I think the discussion about the pandemic is now that the problem with the healthcare. So a lot of people are severely ill and there are not enough beds or the intensive care units to help all those patients. And people still believe that if I'm ill, I'm going to hospital, I will be safe. And that's not true. Mm. So also the normal healthcare has stopped or is, has been diminished because of all the very ill patients with, with COVID. So the problem is the, 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 the capacity for, for hospitals to give care to, to patients. It's not just about death. And uh, the other thing is that uh, we should think about how we lived until now. We travel around the world. We fly four times a year with all those holidays, etc. We eat meat. We, we don't think about death. And we, just love to to live our lives as we want to. And I think we are confronted with the fact that not everything is possible. And not mm -hmm. also in healthcare, and not everything is possible. It's not just about fear of death. It's just we have to change the way we live. And perhaps the pandemic helps us to think it over as well. Yeah. Hopefully, we will change our ways. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> it's a nice way to, uh, to, end, to end this discussion. Thank you, Pim van Lommel. It's been incredibly enlightening and fascinating to hear your insights and your explanations and thoughts. So I hope your findings 
we'll continue to enlighten people about the most important issue of all. Shall I show my book again? Consciousness, Consciousness Beyond Life. Yeah, that's it. Excellent. And as you, they can come also come to my website, www.consciousnessbeyondlife.com, and they can find articles, uh, interviews, lectures, etc. Yeah. Very good. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you again for being a guest on Mind the Shift. You're welcome. Thank you.